Bible backgrounds today, we're moving right along, studying the Persian Empire. Persian Empire, uh, Bible often calls this the Medo-Persian Empire. If you're really scholarly and academic, you call it the Achaemenid Empire, because there's all kinds of Persian empires, and uh, modern history, they always want to go back and claim, uh, like Iran uh, some time ago wanted to claim that they're a Persian empire as well. So, um, Achaemenid empire, we're just going to call it the Persian empire. That's often what's referred to in the Bible. A couple of pictures that we'll look at, this one a bit later, but this is the the standard or what, what we might consider a flag of the first Persian king as he conquered uh, most of the Middle East. His name was Cyrus. And we're looking at various Bible time frame for which books i'll quiz you esther what else daniel what else i'll mark the ones you get right here that daniel this is the hebrew um, layout so don't let it confuse you this is the way the hebrews organized their bible up until uh the greeks and western peoples got a hold of it and rearranged it daniel esther no more answers from you autumn Uh, Esther and Ezra, Nehemiah, Daniel. What else? Those are the easy ones. Gets harder after this. Not Jeremiah. Nope. He died in the first few years of the Babylonian captivity. Not in captivity, but during it. Very end of Chronicles. Yep. And that makes sense if it's written by Ezra. I think Chronicles probably was. A couple of minor prophets. So that's the 12 here. We're going to look just at one verse from each of these. Hezekiah, I mean, sorry, Haggai, Hezekiah, Haggai, and Zechariah, and possibly Malachi, don't know, Malachi doesn't give us any hints, but all of these books that I just uh, checked off here mention kings of Persia by name, so we know for a fact that they happened during those time periods. So last week, we finished off with the Babylonian Empire, and that was mostly... Jeremiah and Ezekiel, right? Uh, Isaiah prophesied of both the Babylonians and the Persians, which we'll look at what he has to say about the Persians. But Jeremiah is all about Babylon coming to destroy Jerusalem, and then at the end of Jeremiah we see it happen. And Ezekiel, of course, is uh, a prophet in the captivity, Babylonian captivity, writing about Jerusalem. And then also much of Daniel is during the Babylonian time. So Daniel's a transitional book. He's, he's writing during the captivity, and then he writes of the Persians coming in and taking over. So we'll see the latter part of Daniel discussing the Persians as well. Of course, Daniel saw the prophecy, the vision, which predicted all these things to come. Any questions on that? So if we're just reviewing what we've learned so far, question. Yes, written both during and often about what's going on. And we see names of the kings mentioned. Now, not all of First and Second Chronicles. Just at the very end of Second Chronicles, we see that Cyrus the Great, the king of Persia, releases the Jews to go back into the land. Then it picks up with Ezra and Nehemiah. These five books of Moses written during what kingdom did we look at or empire that these were written during? Particularly, this talks a lot about it. Who's ruling? Egypt. So this is Egypt. That's what we started with as the first empire. And then what did we look at afterwards? Assyria. But we we took a little gap and looked at just the formation of Israel. Right? That's going to be this right in here. Um, Of course, you know, this was written mostly during the reign of David and afterwards. Uh, Job doesn't count. He's much earlier than all of this. Um, Proverbs, Ruth, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, all written during, mostly for Psalms anyway, but the rest written during the reign of David, Solomon, or in the case of Ruth before that, during the time of the judges. But when Israel uh, had its own kingdom, its own empire, if we want to call it that. Uh, We did forget one about the Babylonian captivity. That's Lamentations, often forgotten because it's a little book right after Jeremiah written, I think, by Jeremiah about the destruction of Jerusalem.
But we also had Assyria. Now, Assyria was a little challenging uh, for us because we talked a lot about the, the secular history, if you want to use that term, of Assyria, but it doesn't come into the Bible a whole lot. We need to understand, though, how the empire built up. But where does Assyria get mentioned in Scripture? Second Kings, about halfway through. So we'll make them purple here. We're getting kind of busy here, but uh, Assyria... Also prophesied by Isaiah, right? And uh, Isaiah says the Assyrians will come, they'll destroy the northern kingdom of Israel, and then God will also punish them for the sin in their heart of wanting to destroy the northern kingdom. So lots about God's sovereignty there. And then, of course, blue here is the Babylonians. So we're done with the Old Testament today. Uh, The Greeks come on the scene after this, and I'll talk more about them at the end. And, of course, next time as well. So we're going to go back to Daniel's vision here. He had a vision in chapter 2, or Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. Daniel interprets the dream. He talks about four uh, different parts of the statue, the gold, the silver, the bronze, and the iron. And then the iron turns into the iron and clay mixed in the feet. And we don't, if you were just reading this in Daniel's day, you wouldn't know who that stands for. But later in Daniel, his future visions get matched up with that. And of course, today we know the gold is the Babylonians. I think uh, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that. Uh, The silver, who is the silver? Who comes right after the Babylonians? Talking about them today? Persia, Medo-Persians. And uh, the brass? Greece, Greece. So Greece has... uh, Think of them as having a brass shield and brass, you know, the Bronze Age. Uh, that would be Greece with their, um, with their bronze weapons. Iron, Rome. Then the iron and clay feet, uh, kingdoms that come about from the Roman Empire. And then the stone at the bottom that's going to crush everything and take up the whole earth. Christ and his kingdom. So moving along now into Daniel 7, I think that is in the red. Babylon is described as a lion. That was often how King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians thought of themselves. And then the Medo-Persians were uh, bear with three ribs in its mouth. Let's look at that. Let me see if I wrote the reference down here. Yeah, Daniel 7.5. And then, of course, Greece is a leopard. We'll look at that. Then Rome, we'll look at that later. Let's focus in on uh, Medo-Persia and the bear. Uh, Daniel... If you're having trouble finding Daniel, I'll tell you, like I tell my kids sometimes, that's on page 1171 of my Bible. Nobody else has got a Bible like mine though, right? So it's not going to help you, but after, in our Bibles, in the English Bible, after Ezekiel, so you have Isaiah, Ezekiel, and then Daniel. And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth, between its teeth, and thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. How do we know that's Persia? See how well y'all know Daniel. Who's been reading Daniel and studying it lately? Look down at uh, 8.20. No, let's go to 8.3 and 4. We'll get to 8.20. So uh, 8.3 and 4, another... Vision. Then I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. Now 820, this gets interpreted. The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. So we've got two horns there, one's longer than the other, because Media is going to fade away and Persia is going to dominate. First, it's the Medes and the Persians allied together. They attack the Babylonians. The Medians get forgotten, really. They're just uh, contributing troops, but they're going to be ruled by the Persians, so we call that the Persians, one horn being bigger than the other. So we go back to the bear now in 7.5. What does it say about the bear? He's a beast resembling a bear. It's raised up on one side. Again, one side stronger. Probably the bear is, is coming forward in the vision and his, he's got one paw, maybe two, raised up 
on one side as he runs. And that's likely, we don't have a for sure 100% interpretation, but a bear is always noted for its great size and its fierceness. And this is going to describe the Persian Empire. They're going to be fierce. They're going to quickly take over the Babylonian Empire. Cyrus is going to have a, a great army, great military might. And he's going to conquer many other uh, kingdoms. In fact, the three ribs are likely the great empires he will devour. He's going to devour Babylon. That's the, the one we've already discussed. There's one in modern day Turkey called Lydia. A kingdom of Lydia that he will devour. So that's up in here. Of course, Babylon, when the Persians take over, they pretty much rule like so. Persians are going to come from the east like this and take all of that. So the three ribs, Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt down here. That's most likely the reference to three ribs in the mouth. The bear has already conquered those in the vision, and he's got them in his mouth, the ribs, eating, devouring to the Medes and the Persians. So here's the um, map of their empire. You can see the dotted line. If you can see the shading here, the Persians extend far past the Babylonians. You see the Babylonians only went to right here. Persians push all the way into Greece eventually. Let me get a better color here. All the way into Greece. And it, it's off the map on the right. They go into India, northern India. And, and take over uh, the northern kingdoms in Indian subcontinent. How were they able to do this? Well, they had a, a big military. Essentially, that's how they all conquer, you know, even today. The Persian immortals were the ones that get mentioned in uh, the history books, even ancient Greek historians. Not because they were thought to live forever, but there was always 10,000 of them, a professional paid army, standing army, and they were replaced as soon as one got hurt. There was another man that could step in his place. So to the enemies, seemed like they were immortal. You couldn't kill them. As soon as one went down, another one would take his place to where they always had 10,000. A lot of kings had troops, but they would have to go out and muster them. They would have to go out and find the troops. To have enough money to pay 10,000 men to always be ready it took much wealth. Of course, it made these kings famous. They look kind of weak. You know, they got pretty decorative cloaks on here. That's their ceremonial wear. And under those cloaks, they would have scale mail or chain mail, some kind of metal that would protect them from arrows hitting them. They had a spear, and they also could use the bow. So they're pretty fearsome in battle. That's not to mention tens of thousands of other troops that the king would bring along uh, as he conquered. What kind of religion did they practice? Well, they practiced Zoroastrianism. Tell me if this sounds familiar. They had a prophet, Zoroastria, long before the Persians. 1,000, 1,500 B.C., no one knows when he lived. He supposedly had a dream. There he is, later, later picture. He has a dream that... The God spoke to him, or one God spoke to him, and uh, he was shown the truth of how to worship this God, and of course set up this religion of peace. What does that sound like? Okay, Islam. Yeah, in fact, a lot of people will argue that Islam is really a mixture of Zoroastrianism and a little bit of Christianity from the biblical Old Testament, New Testament mixed in. We won't go off on that track today, but it, it sounds very familiar. They would worship in a cube type of temple here. All the ancients thought, tell me if this reminds you of something in the Bible. All the ancients thought that a true God would be worshipped in a cube-like structure. What does that remind you of from the Bible? What's that? Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, and where was the Ark of the Covenant? In the temple, in the Holy of Holies, which was a perfect cube. And also, what's going to be shaped like a cube in the future? New Jerusalem, right? New Jerusalem. So uh, there's some of these truths that I think linger in men's minds generation by generation. And uh, they try to get as close as they can in their own way. Not in a good sense, but 
It's like remembering the things that happened in the flood. Those get passed down generation to generation. And people say, okay, I'm going to make up my own religion. I'm going to get as close as I can to the memories of my ancestors passed down. But they don't have true light without God's intervention. So Zoroastria, here's the main god that spoke to uh, Zoroastria. Ahura Mazda. Yes, the vehicle named Mazda gets their name from this guy. As many other brands today go back to pagans and come up with these names. The inventor of the the Mazda Corporation, or the the guy who started it, got the name from this god, an ancient god. They were, some argue, the first monotheists. We know that that's not the case. The first monotheists are the Jews in Scripture, Abraham even before that. But uh, secular scholars say these were the first monotheists. They don't believe the Bible. Their god was uh, a man who had these wings coming off of him, different circles, You'll see some of the later kings in Persia will put themselves in this picture as well. So this is who they worship. And in the Bible, we're going to see some interesting terms to describe these kings of Persia. They don't worship the true God, but yet God will use them in his sovereignty to do certain things. Whether some of them were converted or not, it's not clear in Scripture. But particularly this first great king of Persia, Cyrus the Great. Uh, Isaiah describes him in... Uh, some interesting terms that we'll consider. Uh, he was really the second king named Cyrus, but no one cares too much about the Persians before they conquer Babylon. And he's the guy who did it. He's the one who conquered Babylon. You remember in Daniel, the writing on the wall? The kingdom's going to be lost that very night. That's the Persians coming in and taking Babylon that very night. Cyrus is the king ruling the Persians and the, and the Medes at that time. Later, history calls him Cyrus the Great. Died in 530 B.C. So here's his uh, image on a car on a wall. See how he's got those wings coming out? Kind of like the God that they worship. If you were to draw it out, it would look like so. And uh, they can zoom in on his head there, and, and artists have recreated it. Uh, he wore this metal helmet into battle with a star on the side. We like to think it might be painted, or not even painted, just a bronze, shiny look, but I think it was painted blue and uh, fearsome in battle. In fact, his name was prophesied in Isaiah. Let's look at Isaiah 44, 28. Now, Isaiah's writing 100 plus years. We don't know exactly when Isaiah wrote his book and when he's writing here in chapter 44 of Isaiah, but 100, 130 years plus before Cyrus comes on the scene, uh, Isaiah 44, 28. And we're going to see God call him my shepherd. Very interesting language there, isn't it? 44, 28. It is I, this is God speaking through Jeremiah, it is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built... And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. What's happening in the days of Isaiah writes this? Has the temple even been destroyed yet? Not when Isaiah writes, temple's still there, Jerusalem's still intact, the Babylonians have not conquered by the end of Isaiah's book. So he's telling the Israelites, someday a man, a king named Cyrus is going to come and say, you can rebuild the temple, you can rebuild Jerusalem. But Jerusalem hasn't even been destroyed yet. So you can see, long before it even happened, God's giving them hope. They're going to be reading Isaiah during the Babylonian captivity. And they're going to be waiting. Who is this King Cyrus that's coming? So you can imagine when the Persians come in and conquer Babylon, the Jews are cheering because they know the king's name is Cyrus. They know it's written in Scripture what he's going to do. Look at 45.1, next verse. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. God's anointed. That's the Hebrew word meshuach, or translates in the speaking of Christ as Messiah. In this case, Cyrus is, is like a Messiah figure who's going to do God's will 
in letting the captives go free and go back and rebuild the temple and worship God. The only time anyone else in Scripture is called the anointed other than Christ doesn't mean that Cyrus was a true Messiah, but he's like that. He's one of God's anointed, which means smeared with oil, which means set apart. He's set apart to do a specific task. Why did Cyrus get so great? Why did he conquer Babylon? Why did he subdue all the Middle East? God is saying to rebuild the temple. You know, secular historians look at this and they study Persia and they look at all the monuments and cities and armies and conquests. But God is saying here, look, it's all for my purpose to let my people go so that they might rebuild the city and especially the temple. So interesting language, my shepherd, his anointed. Did Cyrus become a believer in the true God? We don't know. But this is a strong language from Isaiah uh, mentioning him. And it's thought that Daniel, as he's one of the ministers, as he's one of the government officials under Cyrus, that Daniel gets out the book of Isaiah and reads that passage to Cyrus. And that's what stimulates Cyrus to let the Jews go. Because he sees his own name in Scripture, ancient Scripture that came long before him. And Daniel was one of his government officials. So the historian Josephus, a Jewish historian, said that's how it happened. Daniel gets out the book of Isaiah. He reads it to the king. The king says, wow, my name is there. This is amazing God. I'm going to let his people go back. So let's look at Daniel. Daniel 5.31. You notice we talk a lot about Daniel in these last two weeks. Lots of history in Daniel of what's going on with the Babylonians and the Persians. Daniel gets a front stage seat. He's got the ear of both Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus, two great kings of ancient empires. So the Persians take over and he says here in 531, So Darius, or Darius the Mede, received the kingdom at about the age of 62. If you go right up before that in verse 29, Belshazzar, that's the Babylonian king at the time of Babylon. He gave orders and they clothed Daniel because Daniel had interpreted the writing on the wall. Verse 30, that same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, the Babylonian king, was slain. The very night that the party happened, that the handwriting was on the wall. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom. Now scholars have said the Bible's wrong here because his name wasn't Darius. It was who? Cyrus. And, you know, in English, if, if his name is Brandon, why would I call him Michael? It doesn't work like that in ancient uh, history. Let's look at 6.1. It seemed good to Darius uh, to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom, and over them three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one. So Daniel's one of three that oversee the whole empire. 120 provinces. And it's clear that this is the first king of the Persians coming in. So we know that he's called Cyrus in other books of scripture and in Greek history and all kinds of history books. Uh, Look at 25 through 28 of chapter 6. Then Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who were living in all the land, May your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom... Men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and enduring forever. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed and his dominion will be forever. This is Cyrus. Cyrus is writing this letter to all his kingdom. The true God delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. Cyrus is the king that uh, threw Daniel in the lion's den. Remember the plot against Daniel? It wasn't really Cyrus. The the king was staying up all night worried that Daniel might be eaten. And then when he sees this miracle, he, he makes this proclamation. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So that and right there you see in verse 28, 628, Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. In Hebrew and in Greek, the word and can also mean even. So it could read, Darius even 
and the reign of Cyrus the Persian, meaning they're the same people. And that would make sense. Uh, Darius is a Persian title, really. I can't really pronounce this Persian, but I'll try. Uh, Dara Yavuhush. And that means maintaining what is good, often meant the royal one. So later we're going to see some kings named Darius, but that wasn't their actual name. They took that title on because it became known as the royal one, the king, we might say in English. Yes? Uh, Cyrus, but he's called Darius here. Yes, so the Babylonians took him into captivity, and Nebuchadnezzar, yeah, and a few generations later, here comes Cyrus. Yeah. So he's 62. Here's the problem. There's going to be three other kings that take on the name Darius in secular history, and none of them receive the kingdom that late. They're they're young when they receive the kingdom because they're princes, they're heirs of the kingdom. In this case, Daniel's saying Darius comes in and gets the Babylonian kingdom at 62. The only person that fits that is Cyrus. So it must have been Cyrus the Great. It's clear if we take scripture as being inerrant that that's who comes and takes over Babylon. That's who makes Daniel one of the three commissioners. Uh, that's who receives the Babylonian kingdom. So again, probably just a title uh, for royal one, and scripture is not in error. We know Isaiah already mentioned specifically the name Cyrus, and so will others that we'll see. So what did Cyrus do? What did he do in the Bible timeline? Well, he ends the 70-year captivity. The Babylonians took them away. For 70 years they were there. As soon as he takes over Cyrus, the Persian king, he lets them go. Let's look at uh, Ezra 1, 1 through 4. And that's the same as 2 Chronicles 36.22. So go back to the left in your Bible a good ways to Ezra before Esther, before Nehemiah. Ezra 1. This is how the book starts. Now this is not in the day of Ezra specifically. He's going back a bit covering the history up until his day. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. So we, we can now match that with the timeline of secular history. You just go to when Cyrus took over the Babylonian kingdom. And that his first year, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. So Jeremiah wrote of things that would come. Uh, I'm not sure he mentions Cyrus specifically, but uh, Ezra knows that of the prophecies Jeremiah made, he was had in mind Cyrus. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. So he stirs up this king, this pagan king, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem. What's that? The temple. He's appointed, Cyrus has read Isaiah. He's read the prophecies in Jeremiah, uh, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, so whatever Jews are out there that get this message, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor, at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a free will offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. So he's not just saying, I'll let you go and you can do what you want. He's saying, everyone go back. And not only that, everyone else needs to give them money and give them supplies and give them food to eat. He's actually blessing the whole thing with his power. He's called the king of Babylon, Cyrus is, in uh, 5.13 uh, of Ezra. And he gives back the furniture of the temple. Look at 7 and 8 in chapter 1 here. Also, King Cyrus brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and put in the house of his gods. 
So he goes into the temple when, when Nebuchadnezzar finally destroys Jerusalem and he destroys the temple. He burns it to the ground. He takes all those gold items out. Probably not the Ark of the Covenant. It's never mentioned after Jeremiah. So probably it was hidden away and who knows where it is today. You can watch Raiders of the Lost Ark to get some ideas on that. But it disappears from the biblical scene. I don't think God will allow uh, Nebuchadnezzar to take it away. And if he did, we would probably have discovered it again here when Cyrus gives all the furniture back. But all that gold, the, the menorah or the candelabra, the, the table for the bread, all of those things are given back to the Jews to take with them and put in the temple. Uh, verse 8, And Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out by the hand, and he mentions the treasurer's name. He counted them with this other guy, the prince of Judah, Sheshbashar. Chart here, we, we considered this last week with the Babylonians. You see here where the timeline fits with books of the Bible. So here's the captivity here. So we're covering most of the book of Daniel, the first half anyway. Uh, the end of Jeremiah talks about the Jews going into captivity and Ezekiel is written during the captivity. But Ezekiel probably dies halfway through. Jeremiah's dying earlier than that. But Daniel lives all the way through it. And then here, Cyrus comes in, takes over, decrees that the Jews can go free. I mean, stuff like this just amazes me with God's sovereignty. American Christianity talks about free will and how everybody gets to decide what they're going to do. And, and here's God moving major, the, the biggest power players in the world at this time, just to fit his prophecies. He's already foreseen it all. He's already worked it all out in his mind. And this is what he brings to pass. And he talks about it even in scripture long before it happens. So here's the newly created province of Judah, or Yehud. And that comes up in uh, Persian chronicles that are written. So Cyrus, great king, called my anointed, my shepherd, writes worshipful letters about God. I'm just thinking that sounds like a believer when he says such things. But he could have just been saying, there are many gods and we have our God and they have their God and their God's pretty awesome too and let me talk about him. Not going to argue either way there because scripture doesn't say. He died eventually, of course, as all men do. They put up his uh, tomb there. Still stands today. His body's gone. It's been robbed along with all the valuables that were there. But in Iran, they still preserve it and tourists come from around the world to see uh, the, the tomb of uh, Cyrus. And so the first step here is about the top of my head. So you can see how large it is there. Alexander, when he's going to come through with the Greeks and take over this area, he's going to pay tribute to Cyrus by making sure this is maintained Next king mentioned in the Bible, uh, Darius, Darius the Great. So Cyrus was called Darius the Mede because it's a title, Darius, the royal one. But later, uh, this, this guy takes over the kingdom and he calls himself Darius, which starts a line of that name. And later, he's referred to as the Great. There's his coin, 95% gold. That's pretty high amount of gold. Very rich kingdom. 95% gold in these coins. There's his image there on the left. Uh, he rules until 486 B.C. And he really expanded the kingdom even further. Uh, he pushes further into Egypt and, and takes a big chunk of uh, Greece as well. He, this is the, the height, really, of the Persian Empire right here under Darius. He's mentioned in uh, Ezra by name. Ezra 6, 14, And they finished building according to the command of the God of Israel and the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. So Darius I is in a line here of kings that allows the temple to be built. This temple was completed on the third day of the month of Adar. It was the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. I didn't put a scripture reference there, but it's also in Ezra. Also in Nehemiah, as for the Levites, the heads of fathers' households were registered in the days 
It mentions three guys' name, four guys' names. So were the priests in the reign of Darius the Persian. So here we have this king, and I'll show you a, a timeline at the end here. It puts all these kings together. But another king doing good things for Israel, not causing trouble. Uh, two prophets that also prophesied during the reign of Darius the first, Haggai. It says that he prophesied in Jerusalem during the second year of Darius, and then Zechariah prophesied in Jerusalem during the second and fourth year of Darius. Mentioned quite a few times in the Bible. He decided that his, um, his father, the, the tomb was, was not good enough for him, so he built this neat-looking tomb in the side of a cliff here. Sort of looks like something out of a movie. I'm wondering how you get up there, first of all, to carry the coffin, and uh, not to mention everything else that he probably wanted to be buried with. But uh, it's on the side of a, a cliff. Uh, they know it's him by this writing and things above and below. And then, of course, his next three generations will also put their tombs here. This is in Iran today. So you can see how large that is. There's three there and then one off to the right. Uh, they know for sure, I think this one here, yeah, this one's Darius the first, and those other three are going to be his son, grandson, and great-grandson. So now we come to Xerxes the Great. Later he's going to be called Xerxes the First. Why? Because if you're the first one, you don't call yourself the first until you start having kids and grandkids that call themselves the second. Xerxes the Great. Who's he? Where does he come into the Bible? Esther. There he is talking to Esther. We've got a picture of that there. Kidding. It's just a painting later. Probably what he looked like. Purple. All these symbols. You can see the, the symbol there of the Mazda God there. And, uh, he would have inherited all the riches and all the wealth of his fathers and grandfathers. The king in, es- in um, Esther. So this is who she marries. Who she's the queen with. Now he's not called Xerxes, is he? What's he called in Esther? Ahasuerus. That's the Hebrew. In Persian, Kashayarsha. In Greek, Xerxes. So, you know, we have these names like Xerxes, but they didn't go around saying those names. That's the Greek name the Greeks give to him. You know, they hear his name and somehow it ends up being translated as Xerxes. Uh, 1-3 of Esther. Uh, Let's read that. That's the... The party. So if you're in Ezra, go to the right past Nehemiah. And Ezra starts off, the book does, by giving us a timestamp. Took place in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. So they've added seven provinces since Daniel's day. In those days, and she go, uh, the writer here of Esther goes on. To talk about the party in, the, in verse 3. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Media, the nobles, the princes of his provinces, being in his presence. And he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days. They partied and he brought out all his treasure and wealth to show it off. It's very likely here They're planning the great invasion that he would later attempt against Greece. Uh, They wanted more of Greece. They wanted to destroy Athens. They wanted to destroy the great cities of the Greek culture. The Persians liked the Greek culture, and they often took in uh, many mercenaries and outcasts from Greece. But it was always their goal to push further into the West and take over all of Greece. So it's very likely, if we take secular history and line it up with biblical history, that this party is a great plan with the army officers and princes and nobles to get a massive military invasion together and, and take on Greece, which he'll later do. First time he attempts to go across this place called the Hellespont, a little strip of water. If he can cross over there, he can get around to uh, Greece. They build pontoons to make a bridge. Storm comes in, wipes them out. So the Greek historian Herodotus says that he orders his men to whip the Hellespont and lash it with so many lashes, 
because he's that angry. Probably happened, you know, they believed in gods of the land and the sea and they would come and uh, somehow punish, I guess, the god of the sea. But he's not done. He does uh, eventually get across. He, this is the famous Thermopylae incident with the Spartans fighting against 7,000 Spartans and other Greeks hold the pass for three days against Xerxes and 150,000 or more troops. Ancient historians say a million to two million. That's a lot. Could be more like 150,000. He does eventually get through. He conquers much of Greece. Then he has to come back because he hears Babylon's in revolt. He goes back. The general he leaves in charge loses against the Greeks and they push him out. Now this is big in world history because this is what's going to really inflame the Greeks. They don't like the Persians. The Persians keep attacking them and Xerxes really makes them mad because he does so much damage in Greece. So later when Alexander takes over Greece, he's going to use that as justification to come and attack the Persians and eventually conquer their empire. So again, God's sovereignty He's very, uh, the Greeks hate the Persians. God will use that, of course, to make sure that all the Middle East speaks Greek in a few hundred years after this. Why is that important? Our New Testament is written in Greek. That's the language of the day that everybody could understand. I'll just go real quick. We don't have to look these up. But Daniel's vision in 11, uh, 1 through 4, he's giving a vision of the future kings of Persia. And it's in the days of Cyrus, Darius the Mede, And he says, after Cyrus will come three more kings. They're not mentioned all in scripture. I've got a list here. So Cyrus the Great has a son, Cambyses II, not mentioned in scripture. Another, possibly a son of Cyrus named Smyrdas. But this is an interesting story. It's very likely a Persian magi. Remember the magi who come and visit Jesus from Babylon? What are the magi? Astrologers. They're not really magicians. They're just astrologers, stargazers, astronomists, people who know the arts. They're the ones you call in when you have a dream or a vision to interpret. It's thought that he impersonates one of the king's sons and becomes a king for a month, then gets killed by Darius I. So here's the three kings mentioned in Daniel 11.1. 1. Uh, Cambyses II, this guy Bardia or Guamata the Magi, And then Darius comes in. We already talked about him. And then it says a fourth rich king who attacks Greece. Who's that? We just talked of Xerxes the first. So Xerxes will attack Greece. And then in verse 4 of Daniel 11, a mighty king will arise. That's going to be Alexander. A mighty Greek king will arise is the idea there. Because Xerxes attacks Greece, a mighty king will arise. Then his kingdom will fall into four parts. We'll look next time at how Alexander dies early. Four generals take over. Then they fight, particularly in the land of Israel. It's all laid out in Daniel 11. Prophesied hundreds of years before it happens. One more guy to talk about here, Artaxerxes. Couldn't they come up with unique names? It gets confusing, right? Xerxes, Artaxerxes, the first. There's going to be more than him. He's the last one mentioned. Uh, He's mentioned in Ezra 7. Ezra left Babylon. So before Ezra 7 is just the history from Cyrus to Ezra. When he leaves Babylon for Jerusalem, when does he do it? During the reign of Artaxerxes, the son of Xerxes. And then in 423 and 24, he ordered the rebuilding of the temple to stop. You remember the whole issue with the the people around Jerusalem don't like what Nehemiah and Ezra are doing. They don't like the temple being built in Ezra's day. They don't like the wall being built in Nehemiah's day. So they cause a fuss. Well, in Ezra 4, they write letters to the king of Persia at the time, and it's Artaxerxes, and he puts a stop to it. And then later, they'll be able to resume it again. And Nehemiah he is the cupbearer to Artaxerxes. So the cupbearer is bringing the cup, the drink, the wine to the king to drink, making sure nobody poisons it along the way. And that's Nehemiah. That's his job. He's a Jew that can be trusted. He worships God, of course, so he doesn't want to, to murder someone. And uh, it says in one that he served Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes is the one that grants Nehemiah to go rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and gives him building supplies. He doesn't just say, you're okay to go. I mean, this is a, 
a trusted servant. Who else is the king going to trust to bring his drink to him? And yet he lets Nehemiah go because Nehemiah is sad and he's downcast. The king, remember, in Nehemiah 2, asked him what's wrong. Nehemiah says, oh, king, I'm saddened over the city of my people. The walls are, are laid bare. The city is devastated. The king lets him go and just says, when will you return? And then he blesses him with supplies. So Nehemiah goes for 12 years. They start to rebuild. They rebuild the wall. And then 12 years later, it says in 13.6 of Nehemiah that he returns to see the king. This is probably when some of the sinful stuff goes on, right? They start marrying in Jerusalem other uh, pagan wives. And then he comes back, Nehemiah does. And he's really upset at the end because they've done all this good and now they disobeyed the Lord by taking pagan wives. By the way, Malachi's not dated, but I think Malachi probably happens during this absence of Nehemiah. Because what Malachi's saying, uh, he's talking about the priests and all the sin that they've done. And I think they get a bit loose whenever Nehemiah goes away for a while. And that's when Malachi prophesies and writes his book. All right, final timeline here. You all see that? If you can't, you can always move up, but they'll be posted as a PDF on the website as soon as I send them to Pete. So here's Nebuchadnezzar. It's kind of a busy one, so let me walk you through it. Nebuchadnezzar takes the people into captivity. You see the deportation number one right here? That starts the 70 years. That's the first time that he goes to Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar does. He doesn't destroy everything. He takes the people away, though. He conquers that area. Later, the fall of Jerusalem happens here. That's when he destroys the temple. We spoke of that last week. But the 70 year starts right here. And that's when most of Daniel, uh, that we we see uh, where Daniel's life under Nebuchadnezzar occurs. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar's sons, grandsons and such. Then, 70 years later, Cyrus comes on the scene right here. Right after he comes on the scene in Babylon, he lets them go back and they start to rebuild the temple, 536 roughly. 70 years. There's uh, Belshazzar writing on the wall, that guy, last king in Babylon. Then we have Darius here. I'll change colors. Darius I. Temple is completed under him. Then you have Xerxes, Artaxerxes, and then Darius II is not mentioned in Scripture. Scripture basically runs from here to right there. And you see at the end, Nehemiah returns probably 433 B.C. Now, Haggai and Zechariah right here, that's able to be dated. Malachi, I don't agree with this. The guy who made this up, I'm going to cross out Malachi and put him more like right here. But you can do your own study and try to date Malachi if you'd like. The rest of these prophets are dated based on the kings they mention and the year of their reign. So a timeline of God's sovereignty, how God works, how God uses the pagans, even converts some of them. Yeah? Nebuchadnezzar, I think, was converted. I already told you, Cyrus says some interesting things about the Lord. And the Lord says interesting things about Cyrus. God's sovereignty is all over this, as any part of history. But here, we know whatever happens in the world is God's sovereignty. Nothing can happen outside of the will of God. But here, he brings it into the timeline of his people, and it gets often recorded in Scripture. So that's amazing to me, a great and powerful kingdom who sweeps and takes over all the Middle East, is all designed by God for one purpose, to bless his people and to bring about his will. And he even prophesies it about it before it happens. Questions, comments? Brennan? One thing I appreciate whenever you're going through Daniel and explaining those symbols with the hermeneutics class that we just did with Abner and Chow, um, we discussed the errors and principles that you use there using the literary elements, the grammar, and the historical context. Mm-hmm. And the three C's to test that are scripture will explicitly claim it, like you just showed with that chart earlier. Mm-hmm.
Yeah. And no one really doubts that the kingdoms match up, but it's so clear in history. Unbelievers don't even doubt that. In fact, they know it to be the case. What they do is they move Daniel a lot closer. Daniel must have written during the time of the Greeks to know all these things. No, Daniel is very clear who the king and the rulers are when he writes. But his prophecy is so specific that unbelieving scholars cannot believe that Daniel would be able to write that clearly about what is to come. We didn't even look really at Daniel 11 and 12, all these four kings after Alexander and what happens, and then a mighty king, and then there's a king of the north and king of the south, and maybe we'll talk some about that next time with the Greeks. It is amazing though, right? The book of Daniel is very clear on what happens. Other questions? Comments? You guys got it all down? Who, who is the great king that allowed the Jews to go back? It's time for a quiz. Cyrus. His name's in scripture, so this isn't just a history quiz here, right? This is a scripture quiz. It's a Bible quiz. Some of the stuff you're going to forget about, and that doesn't matter. But others, it's good to know. So when you read the Old Testament, you you know the background. You know what's happening here. Who's uh, Who's the king of Esther? The guy she marries. The guy she becomes the queen of. Xerxes. Or Xerxes the first. Or Xerxes the great. Or the Hebrew. Who, who has it back here? I heard it. Ahasuerus. That's the Hebrew term. And just remember, when you have names and you want to put them on the timeline, do a little research, look it up. Darius, Darius is used a lot. These first, second, and third guys, sometimes confusing. So, so you'll read a, a liberal commentary and they'll say, well, this didn't happen in this guy's day because that's too soon. prophecy is too accurate. He must be talking about Darius the third or somewhere down the line. So just do your research. Don't believe the liberals. Believe the word of God. Lord, we do love your word and we trust always that it is true and errant without error. It lines up perfectly with what's happened in history. And if at times people are confused, it's because we don't have all the archaeological evidence that has not been unearthed yet. But we trust your word. We study it. We love it. We love to see your sovereignty in these things. Help us understand it more as we read through it. Give us a greater love for the Old Testament. Give us a a greater love for what's there and how you've worked there for your people. We pray this in the name of our Lord. Amen.